We're continuing in Joshua, and this is, I guess every chapter we've been through has been incredible how it meshes with where we are either as a congregation or as individuals or as nations. And this message, I didn't time it in terms of I was going to preach right when the coronavirus was on most people's hearts and minds. I had no idea when I started with Joshua. But chapter 11 and 12 point to, I believe, very specifically to what we are facing. Not in the same way, but in a way in which we take a position as believers in our God who is Lord, King. He is in charge of everything that is happening. And we not fear. And so if we could take this chapter to our hearts, apply it to our situation that we are experiencing, go away this week from this service and share it with others. Bring a confidence in your conversation, in your perspective, that the Lord is for his people. He knows what he is doing. He knows what's happening. Last week I talked about, we went through Revelation and all the plagues, the bowls of wrath that were poured out on the earth. This may be one of those bowls. I trust not. But if it is, our confidence is in the Lord. Father, we pray that you would bless this word now to us. And especially give me the right words to say the right things to encourage and to point to the truth of what your word is speaking to us. Allow this to be a message from your heart by your Holy Spirit. Enlighten your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have put this up at the beginning of each of my messages, and I believe that this really capsulizes what the book of Joshua and the record that we have in the Old Testament has to speak to us. We do need rest. Some of you are working at home or some of you are working in situations in your office that are very stressful right now because of what is happening. And we've been talking about rest. What is rest? We need to take rest to ourselves and understand what true rest is really all about. It's not in having a vacation and just not worrying about work anymore and just playing on the beach. That's not rest. That's an activity. In fact, we come back from a vacation and you're more tired than when if you'd gone to work, right? Come on. <laughs> Confess it. How many have taken vacations that were not a vacation at all? Okay, that's my point. Resting is in trusting. Trusting our maker. The one who knows us best. He's the one that gives us rest. What did Jesus say? Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. He didn't say, I'll give you a 10-bedroom home. I'm trying to think of something ridiculous, but anyway. He doesn't say to us that he's going to fix all our problems. What he has come to do is to give us heart rest, where we can be in the midst of a storm, and yet we're at peace. We're at rest. We've come to a place where we just lift it to you, Lord. You know, I'm in over my head, and you can lead me into true rest so that I am a blessing at work, so that I'm a blessing in my home, so that I become an example of what Jesus can do for everyone. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. That is what Sabbath rest is. But there's a double meaning in this Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest was God's command to man that in six days he created the world and he rested on the seventh day. Our God rests all the time, but especially on the seventh day, being the fact that our attention is for work. He made us to work, but he also knew that we need to take a break. And true rest is when you come to a place where, like for instance, Sunday morning, well, I've, I've got too many things to do to really spend time with the Lord and with his people. And it's a recognition on Sunday that this is the Lord's day. And isn't it quite amazing? Well, maybe not, because we do have an amazing God. But Jesus was raised on Monday morning. Is that right? What day was he raised from the dead? Sunday. Sunday morning. Resurrection day for us, giving us eternal life. Setting for us a way through this cursed world and allowing us to enter into his presence, to be reminded this is the Lord's day. Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the same pattern of disobedience of many, many people who do not understand what it means to rest in the Lord. Our outline today for this chapter is Israel's inheritance, but actually that is not an exact title, and I was working with various different titles for my message today, but Joshua 11 and 12 is about making war. We have to sometimes make war 
in order to be able to receive what rightly belongs to us. The first thing is to overcome fear. Fear robs us of rest. How many of you have woken up in the middle of the night and you're thinking about that report that was due? It's due at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. I do that every Saturday night, <laughs> early Sunday morning, waking up. Well, I better go up and just kind of polish off my message. Well, it's no use. There's so many times now I polish and I polish and I rub the surface off of my Bible, so to speak. It doesn't matter. If you are blessed by what I say, that is the Lord's doing. If you're not, that's my doing. Okay. Anyway, overcoming fear. Hardened hearts rest from war. We're going to look at these things. First point is overcoming fear. Joshua 11, 1 to 15. Let me read this. Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, Joshua and Israel's victory over the five kings, that he sent to the other kings of the Canaanites. And they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Wow. Last week we talked about the five kings that Israel had to compete against. We'll find out what the number is of these kings at the end of this message. But it's almost like you start one thing and all of a sudden it just spirals into something bigger. If Joshua and Israel had known that, or even Moses had known what they were going to face, the children of Israel, going back to their land that had been promised to Abraham by their God. It was their land. But there were people, as we've talked about in past messages, who were ungodly, pagan, horrendous lifestyle, sacrificing their babies and children to the gods. That was the condition in the land when Israel was down in Egypt growing up to be a nation. That land had been promised to them, set aside for over 450 years. And yet they had to go back in and it wasn't just a matter of walking in and saying, okay, here's our deed for the land. Would all of you just kind of clear out and we'll just take over from here on out? It wasn't that easy. You know, I heard that in Japan, it's very hard for the landlord to come and say, you got to get out of this, this house. Your lease is up. You haven't been paid the rent. It's almost impossible, I hear, to move somebody out on the street. Is that right? In America, all you have to do is show the police that the rental agreement says such and such a date. And if you're not going to leave, the police will come and physically lift you out of it. But I guess not so here in Japan. So we're going to stay for another couple of years. <laughs> okay, they had to do battle. 
What was the number one problem? The number one point up here. Horses and chariots. What does that represent? That represents mechanized warfare. Basically, chariots were quite new to, and so Egypt is known even today as the best horse breeders in the world. Remember, it was Pharaoh who chased after the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt with horses and chariots. And so it becomes a mechanized war. Israel didn't have that. All they had was lances and bows and arrows and swords. And here comes all these kings who have banded together to resist this force that is coming, being led by Joshua. Now, I know that sometimes that I have exaggerated in my messages, and I do it all the time. I confess it as a sin. Sometimes I just mean it as a joke. But I think in verse 4 here, the Bible's got an exaggeration here. Katie, do you see that? Is that A, B, C, D, E? You know what A, B, C, D, E is? It's Katie's little thing that she says to me, honey, A, B, C, D, E. Always be careful. Don't exaggerate. <laughs> I think most of us guys are prone to exaggeration. But here is an exaggeration that is in the holy book. As the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Do you think that's true? Well, it is not true, that statement. But it is a truth in comparison to what Israel had in order to fight against their enemies. That's what it was like. It looked like the sand of the sea as they looked out and saw all these horses and chariots and people. And so they come to fight against Israel. Second point, the Lord's assurance to Joshua. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. And last week I called Joshua a coward. I take it back. He was not a coward, but he sure was afraid sometimes so that God would have to say, do not be afraid because of them. Fear puts us on an edge. You know that fear is a God-given gift. If, say, the ceiling started falling, what would we do? We would head for the door immediately. That's what adrenaline does. That's what other chemicals in our brain sets us up to do what we couldn't do naturally. But God says, don't be afraid. Rest in him. For tomorrow at this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him 
came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they were defeated and they pursued them and they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did to them as the Lord told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Pretty gruesome. War is not a pretty thing. What is this hamstringing of horses? Do you know what that is? Uh, how many of you have ridden a horse? When you're on a horse, what is the most thrilling thing to do? Gallop. Yeah, it's, it's fun to just, you know, if somebody's leading the horse and you're sitting on, in the saddle and they're just leading you along. That's not what a horse was built to do. A horse was built for running and to pull great weights in wagons or if it's a chariot. That's what a horse was built to do. That's the way God made them. We call them beasts of burden because they can carry lots of weight. God created horses. There's nothing wrong with horses. But God commanded Israel, do not put your confidence in horses and chariots. Deuteronomy 7, 17. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers them from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Here's another one from Isaiah 31. One. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. There's several other passages talking about don't invest in horses and chariots. And Israel was never known for that until King Solomon came along. To hamstring means to cut the backside of the horse's tendons of those powerful muscles, to cut them the horse is not good for running after that. In fact, it's crippled. The only thing it can do is walk and then not as a regular horse. They were not to invest in horses. And so Joshua had the people cut the hamstring, the tendons in the back of their powerful muscle. Let's get on to number three. Joshua left nothing undone. Good for Joshua. Then Joshua turned back at that time. They struck every person with the edge of the sword. There was no one left who breathed. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings, just as Moses' servant had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds. I'll explain that later. Except Hazar alone which Joshua burned, all the spoil of these cities and the cattle to the sons of Israel as their plunder. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. 
Joshua was faithful in his calling. Verse 13, if you puzzle about that, what does it mean? Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds. It means that this fortified city was on a mound at Hazor. And that's the only one other than the fortress of Ai. That city was burnt by Joshua and Hazor was burnt by Joshua. The rest of the cities, fortified cities, were left intact. But all the people were slain. Why? You remember the first story that we had of Achan, the man who took the gold. Achan took that. That was the first fruits that belonged to the Lord. After that, every city and people that Israel destroyed, those cities belonged to Israel. That's what this means. So God wasn't just being selfish and saying, no, the gold belongs to me. That was as first fruits because he was the one that had allowed them to overcome the enemy. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Our second point, God hardened their hearts. Thus Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all in Negev, all that land of Goshen, the lowland and Arabah, the hill country of Israel and its lowland. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they might receive no mercy. Then Joshua cut off the Anakim from the land and there was no Anakim left in the land. And you see the note down there. The Anakim were like Goliath. You remember the story of Goliath? He was possibly an Anakim, a giant. And then let's read on. There was rest from war. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. They were at peace. Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated. All of the kings that were in that land. Those situations, that situation as far as the whole book of Joshua, has to do with us spiritually. And here's what I want to share with you. This isn't just a history book that you know the facts and you are inquisitive about it and what was this all about. But there are spiritual ramifications about what these chapters here are talking about. And that has to do with us as believers in Jesus Christ. Who is our Joshua? Who is our Joshua as believers? Jesus is our Joshua. And this story and these stories are pointing forward to Jesus and what he has done for us in conquering all of our enemies and taking territory for us. This is a spiritual application 
put in the context or drawn from the context of something that actually happened historically. It's proven this happened. But what is the reality of what it's pointing to is what Jesus Christ, our Joshua, would win for us in dying for us, for our wickedness, our vileness, our paganness, and bring to us freedom and joy and rest. Sometimes I get worried about the church in our liturgy and the conclusions that we make. Not our church, I'm talking to the church worldwide and historically. We have made these things to be, well, you have to do it this way, and you have to do it this way, and that is right. We need to be biblical, but not to make it a religion, or that you must do that if you're going to have any salvation at all. We need to know that this is a prophecy. The book of Joshua is a prophecy looking ahead to revelation of what Jesus Christ has done for us in conquering every enemy against his church and against his people. That's what this book is about. It is the gospel. It is the gospel. Think of Rahab. If you wanted to have a, an example of the gospel, her whole family were saved and they became part of Israel. That is what this is all about. So the Old Testament and the New Testament fit perfectly. There's no, well, this is kind of strange. No, if you study long enough, you look hard enough, you ask the Holy Spirit to guide you, you can understand this and see this in the right perspective. Because the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament are one. And so we open it and we read it, not having favoritism to one book or one part of the Bible over the other. It's all integrated. Read your Bible through or read it in a consistent way in which you read part of the Old Testament and part of the New Testament. There's reading plans out there that'll take you through a whole year. With the internet, it's so easy just to go up there, oh, here's my Bible reading plan, and get your references for the day. And you can check them off even. There's some websites that will monitor you, saying, oh, you missed your Bible reading. They're not trying to uh, say you're a bad Christian. They're just saying, go back and read that. But we should be looking at the Old Testament, the New Testament, as the Word of God as one. And all of these things mesh together. The longer you look at it, the more sense it makes. These kings, does anybody know how many there were? 31 kings. And it says that Joshua fought for a very long time. And it doesn't tell us what the time is. That's what they had to do, is to beat off these people who had desecrated the land and make it God's land, the promised land. 
we in the Christian world, and since Christ came, being our Joshua, we're not killing people to make them believers or bringing judgment on them. The judgment has already been passed on them if they do not believe in Joshua, Jesus, they will not be saved. That goes for your relatives, ones that you love so dearly, your friends. That's what should motivate us as believers. This is serious business. It is war-making. And sometimes it will separate you from someone that you really want to continue a relationship with and you can't because they're going this way to destruction and you're going towards salvation. There is a separation. We didn't make that ourselves. It's finding rest in Jesus Christ and coming to him and knowing that we can rest because we have a Joshua a leader who is sterling in his promise. He's the one who came and gave himself, unlike the Joshua of this story, but like a warrior, one that is going after those things that trap us, enslave us, and bring us into a sinful lifestyle. We've got the internet, we've got movies, we've got all kinds of things that will suck God's people's power and sanctity and purity out of them unless we know there is an enemy and the enemy has to be dealt with. We don't rejoice in the death of sinners. We don't rejoice that someone whom we loved but really despised Christians we don't condemn them. They're condemned already by the fact that they don't follow Jesus Christ as the Joshua. Father, we thank you for the book of Joshua. We thank you for the fact that you give us rest. You give us the rest that Joshua of the Old Testament could never have given us or Israel. We thank you that you are a warrior on our behalf and you've already dealt with the enemies that are in our lives by dying on the cross. We're taking the territory. We're at peace. Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom. Make us vigilant. Make us aware of the day in which we're living. Bless us this week so that we can be a witness and a testimony to a co-worker or a relative or neighbor or friend. We don't want to see them damned. We want to share the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for this day set aside to worship you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.